0: Welcome to Upstaff's Agency Advantage Podcast, hosted by Andy Baldacci. Each week, Andy interviews a successful agency owner who shares their proven strategies to help you build and grow your agency. Hey guys, I'm Andy Baldacci and thanks for joining me for episode number 14 of the Agency Advantage Podcast. Tim really excited to talk to Marcus Blankenship. Marcus built his agency up to a team of over 20 people before deciding to move on, and today he helps agency owners avoid the same mistakes he made, especially those around hiring and managing employees. We covered a ton today, from the biggest mistakes agency owners make within their business, why the myth of the self-managed programmer is hurting your team, all the way to how to effectively lead your team without micromanaging. But before we get there, I just want to give a quick shout-out to our latest review from Mr. Clever, who said... If you're interested in marketing and want to get better at it, this podcast will help you. I especially enjoy the episode on emails. Whether you work at an agency, want to, or are out on your own, you'll get something from this. Mr. Clever, thank you so much. I love hearing from listeners like you, so if you have any thoughts at all, please head over to iTunes and leave a review, or even just email them to me directly at hubstaff.com. Now, without further ado, here's Marcus. So Marcus, thanks for joining me today. Uh, you're welcome, Andy. Good to meet you. Thanks. And so this is something I'm sure you've never heard asked before on a podcast, but, but can you tell a bit about your background and how you got started?
1: Well, sure. I uh, I worked for one of these big faceless global corporations for about 14 years until I finally just got bit by the entrepreneurial bug. And another guy and I decided to start this little company, and uh, it was just us. We were partners. Um, we were, you know, like most people like so many of you out there we were making websites for dirt cheap and we'd had no idea what we were doing um i did it part time for about 2 years i guess uh we rented this tiny little office and you know i'm getting up at 5 in the morning and i'm and we're meeting we're working till 9 then we go to our day job then we get done at 6 p.m. we work till 10 at night we did that for a couple of years until we finally had built up enough clients and and enough guts to that i tricked him into into quitting his day job, and I stayed a little bit longer. And um, in the end, though, uh, we ended up having uh, taking on one more partner and having a little digital agency slash mobile and web software development shop that ha- employed about 20 people. Two years ago, the partnership failed, and we all decided we'd rather go different directions. And uh, so about two years ago, I had to yet again reinvent myself, and uh, I decided that I wanted to help agency owners not to make all the mistakes that I'd made. And (laughs) so that's kind of the core of my business is uh, agency owner mentoring and coaching, as well as uh, more broadly technical Management, leadership, uh, coaching, and training exercise, uh, even for people who don't own the company.
0: Nice. And so I'm sure that building up to a team of 20 and kind of running that for years, you had a lot of ups and downs. And so what are like kind of the main things you learned? What are the big mistakes that agency owners typically make?
1: Well, first off, I thought that I got confused. And I think it's really easy to do about the kind of company you think you want. And we weren't very intentional about it. We really had the impression that if – Sort of it was like this old Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams. Like (laughs) if you just build it, then they will come. And we sort of imagined if we just kept doing great work, well, people would start knocking on our door and they'd want to pay us more money. And like we didn't really have to be intentional about things. All we had to focus on was the building and the people would come. Exactly. And I think that's a complete lie. (laughs) unfortunately. And I made this mistake and we were not very intentional. Uh, so we grew and we added person one and person two and then person eight and 10 and 12. And we got an office and 2,800 square feet with all these desks and all this laptops. And like, it's just great. And the whole time though, we're struggling to land every client. I mean, it is like stress the whole way. And frankly, we didn't want to niche down. That seems very counterintuitive. Why would you limit your offering, right? What you need is more work, not less. And we just kept thinking, all right, it's always going to be better. And we look at all these other agencies, probably like a lot of your fantastically successful customers. And we'd look at them from afar, of course, and we'd think, well, you know, they really nailed it. They're doing great. Everybody else when you're having a hard time, everyone else appears to be doing great but you. And so, because we weren't very intentional again, we kind of took this route of imagining we'd fall backwards over a log into a pile of money if we just kept at it long enough. And I think that I really, I, to, in some ways, our moderate success really did trick my brain too many times into me thinking that we had arrived and that we didn't have to work so hard at sales and marketing or managing overhead or team execution and, and some of that other stuff. I thought, oh, we're here from now on. It's going to be easy. And I just think that that's how I got fooled. That's one of the lessons I learned is it, it, it'll never be easy, especially if you think you you got it's going to be easy by accident.
0: Right. No, and that's a great point is that I think we all, especially as technical people or even creatives, anything, it's like you love doing your kind of whatever it is, that your focus is you love delivering, whether it's design, websites, software, anything, that's what you love. And you want that to just kind of be enough to get you to the next step to get the clients to start coming to you because you don't want to do all the boring sales stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the sales stuff is so much trial and error and You know, it's so not, uh, I know at least from a a software development background, you know, sales was kind of, Like if we all go back to our junior high days, I was the nerd who like showered every three days and socks never matched. (laughs) The marketing guy was the guy who was surrounded by the ladies, you know, who did have socks that match and understood the (laughs) value of having clean clothes. And he even wore a little cologne and right as I sort of I remember these times and I used to think, boy, I never want to be like that guy and in a lot of ways, that was my reaction to feeling like I never could be that guy was kind of saying, well, that guy is a jerk. He's all just flash and no substance. I, I know how to do something real. That's going to benefit in the end. And yet here it is 30 whatever years later. And that whole philosophy of life is basically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a hard pill to swallow.
0: We see so many in everyday life. You see so many people that are successful, and when you look at their product or whatever it is they offer, you say that they don't even do that great of a job, and you almost resent that kind of flash-in-the-pan marketing style, and that makes you just avoid all of it altogether.
1: Right. We think about that's like the, the slimy. So, right, we don't, we don't want to be like them, so we actively do things that they're we actively avoid doing what they're doing, which is having a strong voice, taking a strong position on something choosing a niche, right? We think to ourselves, we're going to be purists all about the code or the art. And that was something that we got confused about too. When you own an agency, you're not an artist. You, And in my opinion, you cannot afford to think like an artist. You have to think like a business person. And that means there's an awful lot of work that has to happen even when there's very little inspiration,
0: That's a great point when you ended, it, even when there's very little inspiration because a lot of the sales and marketing things, they're not necessarily fun. And a lot of it is almost the opposite. It's like I actively dislike getting on the phone. And so it's not even like I I need inspiration. It's like I need someone to push me and force me to do it. But those are the things that you need to do to be successful and, and to keep your pipeline full.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I know that one of the things that when I was an agency owner, like sales was my job, uh, it was kind of this weird thing. I had one partner that just wanted to code, another partner that just wanted to design, and that left sort of everything else on me. And that meant it was sales and marketing as well as running every project and being like the, the project manager and making sure that all the projects that we had promised got out the door. And I felt like there was this tension. We would hire a designer or a developer and speak very aspirationally to them about, we want to do the most amazing work possible. We were going to do all these great things. And but sometimes we had very small budgets and I saw, began to see over time a mismatch in perception between what the client wanted. They wanted to spend five grand on a website, very small amount of money. And the team wanted to deliver something that would be worth 50 grand. And that meant they wanted to pour all of their heart and soul and energy. And like this, it became art to them and I remember that I felt like in a lot of ways that's also something I'd do differently is I I feel like I brought them into the organization and I said, like we're digital artists. And I use all this phrase that made it seem like money wasn't a part of it, but here I was going to them consistently saying, Your billable time isn't enough, you're spending too much time on these projects you know, you can't care about it more than the client. If the client is happy, I remember I got in a fight with one of my designers and she was really upset because I told her to send the the client a low fidelity design that wasn't fully fleshed out. And she hated it, but it wasn't bad, right? It was like a, like a thousand dollar design for a page. And she was like, she leaned into me and sort of whispered, but what if they buy it? What if they say it's good enough? How, how can we live with ourselves? <laughs> and I said, well, that would be great. Then we will have right. spent a little bit of time and earned $1,000, right? <laughs> and But so I guess I wish I would have with my folks. I wish I would have been more intentional about let's remember the reason we're here is to service clients. And when they don't have big budgets and big dreams, we can't. We can't have bigger ideas for them than they have for themselves.
0: Now with what you're doing, are you a solo consultant right now? Is it just you? It is just me. And frankly, I'm happy as a
1: clam with it being just me after seven years of, you know, 100K a month payroll kinds of pressures and Honestly, I, I love being just a solo guy because I, I'm really enjoying uh, this intentionally creating this kind of business that just takes mm-hmm. one person to run it.
0: Mm-hmm. And now what would you say to the agency owner? They, maybe they've been around for a couple of years. They, they started similar to you. They worked with a couple of partners, maybe a team of three or so, but they're starting to get more and more work and they're thinking about expanding and about hiring some help to, to grow a bit. What do you think is the most important things for them to consider to make sure that's what they actually want to do?
1: I, I think a couple of things come to mind. Usually I ask people where, what their exit strategy is. So, and most people haven't thought about it, but you know, are you imagining you're going to sell the company? Are you imagining you're going to retire there? Do you do you hope to do it forever? But and a lot of people react sort of violently, like, well, it's wrong to think about the end when we're clearly in a growth phase. And I'm not asking people. It's sort of like a doctor, I guess, saying you know, you're not going to live forever. So let's talk about the quality of life that you do want. And let's be a little bit more forward thinking, knowing that you're either going to have to make difficult decisions later, or you're going to have to make specific decisions now. Um, and if you don't want to make them now, they'll be forced on you later. And that's exactly what happened to us is we didn't want to have hard conversations early or even in the middle, we just wanted to continue to pretend everything was fine until frankly, one day it wasn't. And then the whole thing fell apart. So I think thinking about what you really want out of it and how long you want to do it and setting intervals to reevaluate those goals. I, I think annually is the most natural. And so if you're, if you're sitting here thinking, well, this is great and things are going well, but I know I'm a little tired give yourself permission maybe every every year or every 6 months to take a weekend and kind of just pretend the company had folded and imagine what would you do and what what would excite you and kind of just let yourself think about you know what would that mean to you and maybe use that as a bit of a metric to say you know what do i really want out of this because in the middle of it it feels like it's just it can feel like a race that we don't know where the finish line is
0: yeah, no, that's a good way of putting it. Usually for the, the clients you have or the people you talk to that you you confident saying, all right, hiring more employees makes sense for you. What criteria usually about them makes you confident that's a good decision?
1: Well, first, you know, we've got to make sure we've got demand, right? Mm-hmm. And so using some really simple supply demand spreadsheets is a tool that I do with most of my clients where we're forecasting the next quarter's work. And we're looking at what we actually get. And then we kind of score the leads that we have because that becomes – we're always thinking, well, if we get project X and Y and Z, if those land, right, we're always going to – oh, my gosh. Well, then we're going to need eight more people, right? Right. Um, but I think the other thing is always having a hiring pipeline. So I think it's a very bad idea to hire when you need people. And that might seem crazy, or let, let me take that back, to interview what, when you need people. You want to interview when you don't need people. It's it's like you don't want to start saving for retirement when you're 60. You need to start when you're 30. So what you want to do is immediately, if you haven't already done it, start putting yourself together a little black book of contractors and potential new hires. These are going to be, because it does take a long time to find, test, vet, and onboard a new person. So, you want to always have a hiring pipeline, just like a sales pipeline. Mm-hmm. That's also going to allow you to get rid of your performers that aren't really doing it for you and aren't really working out, but that you're afraid to let go because you're always thinking, well, if John leaves, you know, I, I just don't know what I would do because the project that he's on is so important. So we make sure we've got demand. That's the first thing. The second thing is we're always looking around and hiring, and we're keeping an active hiring pipeline for both full-timers and contractors, and my favorite kind is the contract to hire. So we'll that'll kind of take us to step three, when we see any – if you really like someone, don't wait until that big project lands to put them on it. Immediately find something. Even if you've got an employee who could already do it, find a five-hour task for that contractor and and tell everybody, even if they say, oh, I want to be a full-timer, in my opinion, everybody starts out as a contractor for the first 90 days. It just is the easiest way to make sure it's a good fit. It's sort of a try-before-you-buy I think about it as dating versus just, you know, an arranged marriage.
0: Right. I, I get that entirely because the same way is like you don't want to wait until you need work to look for the next job. And it goes the same way with hiring a contractor. You don't need to wait until you have too much demand to start trying to hire somebody. But if, if I've never hired anyone before, if it's only just been me and a couple of other people and we kind of don't have any real project management or, or strict procedures in place, What do I even look for? Like, I guess in my mind, like the kind of the cliche advice is you just need to hire kind of that go getter and someone who is just going to to just be able to kind of self manage. Is that like a real thing? No, it's not. (laughs) That's what I was thinking, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I I look at it. So I see a lot of my clients who come to me and they say, I see the cycle. Like, hey, I hired Bill. And when I hired Bill six months ago, he was great. I thought the world of him. And I just thought I could just toss him all this work. He was going to be amazing. Six months later, they're saying that that Bill just doesn't get it. He never really got it. He's kind of an idiot and he doesn't, you know, I don't know what happened. How did he get so dumb so fast? Right. But the reality is, is, is essentially what, I like to use this analogy. It's like the, it's like my client. It's like the agency owner took a really sharp scalpel that had a really specific use and that needed a particular care. And they used it like a box cutter. And what they did is they just dulled the blade on that thing down to where it could never be used for its original purpose again. Um, And, and, and the reason I say this is because it really is the agency owner. It's the hiring person's fault. What you want to do is you definitely want to look for skills, but the most important attributes of your people are going to be consistency, dependability, and attitude. And so it's pretty easy to look at a GitHub repo and tell if somebody has... Rails or Angular or mobile application development experience. Now, they could be lying, so I do think code reviews and really looking at the work is important, but what that repo doesn't tell you is, is this guy going to be responsive to your needs? Is he going to disappear on you uh, halfway through the project? Is he going to make promises to you and never never keep them or, or be really flaky? And those are the things that really frustrate people. Um, and so I think what you've got to do is you've got to set up little tests. The interview is one test, right? Did they show up on time, uh, either remote or in person? Uh, are they quote unquote dressed appropriately? Do they act professionally? But then ask after the interview, basically like ask them to do a couple things. Uh, and I don't mean coding like paying things, but oftentimes I ask people for three references. Okay, I can't tell you the number of people who self-select out of my hiring process because they do not ever send me those references, and and I'm not going to chase them. This is an example, right? right, Of if you don't want, if I say I would like to talk to three of your past or current clients or employers or whatever, and especially if you agree to it, which I've never had anybody say no. They all tell me, "Oh yeah, I'll get that over to you." But you know what? I can't tell you. At least 50% of the people right there just fail to respond. And I usually actually like to make it a little bit more strict. I'll say, I would like this from you. And they'll say, okay. And I'll say, what date and time can I expect it? And they'll say, oh, you know, tomorrow by 9 a.m. Okay, great. I just write that down. So what I'm doing is I'm starting to evaluate their ability to keep really simple promises. If, if you get it, great. You move to the next level, which might be, hey, can you send me a code sample? Um, I'd like to have just something in the, you know, at least 500 lines of code that I can just look at, send me a zip file or open up a repo for me. Again, 25% of the people don't even do that. They say sure. And then you get nothing back. So I I think it's a matter of setting up small hurdles that build trust. If, if you go through two or three small hurdles and then, Hey, let's sign a contract. Oh, again, you cannot chase this person down. You have to make sure that they're actually going to, to of their own volition, come to you with these things after they've agreed to them.
0: You almost are even making it easier for them. Why? If you left it open and just said, hey, just when you get a chance, send me three references, it's almost easier to understand if they don't do it. But when you give a specific time and they, that they gave and they still haven't done it, then that's like a clear warning sign.
1: Right. And a lot of them are, I know that once that time hit, they feel like, oh... Well, I failed. He'll never hire me. Honestly, that's not the case. Honestly, if, if, if it comes in six hours later and I get an apology that because, and and a reasonable excuse, I'll, okay, let's set up another hurdle, right? Let's see if you do it. Um, but most people, and I think this is so true of working remotely with software contractors is once they start to see things slide, they get really discouraged and they don't want to sort of raise their hand for help. And this is a big problem with contractors and employees, right? We see this where you need to have people who are egoless enough to ask for help. And you also have to be the kind of boss that says, right, if you have problems, I I need you to tell me about them. And I'm going to ask you on a regular basis at first, how are things going? And let's look at the work together. But the reality is is I've, I have plenty of people who find that to be, quote, unquote, micromanaging, which it's well, not.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is how would you – how do you balance between the constant checking and all of that and micromanagement? Because I agree there's a difference, but I'm curious to see kind of how you you would describe that difference.
1: Well, for me – Trust how always has to be earned. It's given when I am trustworthy with people and I keep my promises and it is earned by them when I give them small ways to earn my trust. So for example, this might seem quote unquote micromanaging, but when I bring on a new employee, I meet with them at the end of every shift for 15 minutes. Now, I'm not doing that to tell them how to write for loops. I'm doing that so we can talk about how the day went. I can hear where they're struggling and I can give them very – there's a very short feedback loop, if that makes any sense, between what they've done and my impression of it back to their head. I can't tell you the number of employees who have said to me just that alone is really useful because – Most bosses they have didn't even really have a reasonable discussion with them for a couple of weeks and just assumed everything was fine. So I'm of the impression that micromanaging is where you try and do the work for them in a really directive way. And that's different than asking them to show you what they've done or to meet. Uh, I'm a big fan of weekly one-on-one meetings, um, I think it's really about creating space for conversations versus being super prescriptive about variable names, which which is something I would say is a micromanagey thing.
0: Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like the same kind of mentality of like um, waterfall development versus agile development. Instead of waiting for months and just saying, oh, your work sucks, you can say after a short period of time, you you have that shorter feedback loop where you can give them feedback faster and they can adjust – without as much lost or anything like that.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in my study, I'm doing a workshop right now and called Grow Happy Developers. And the core of it is this, this sociology research called leader member exchange theory that sociologists came up with about 20 years ago. And they said some really interesting things and they studied software development in particular, along with a lot of other kinds of manager employee relationships. What they found is the number one indicator of strong job performance and strong job satisfaction was the developer's direct relationship with their direct manager. That that was the thing that mattered. And it mattered more than if the manager exhibited a lot of quote unquote great man leadership traits. So when we study leadership, a lot of times we're thinking Bill Gates and Steve jobs or these people we know that speak and they look like wonderful leaders and they have all these attributes Well, the reality is, is the thing that matters the most for both job performance, which you care about and job satisfaction, which means your developers aren't going to leave is the relationship with their direct manager. Like that's what matters. And that's, that's science. That's not just my experience, although it does match my experience. When you
0: say their relationship with them, it's more than just being like buddy, buddy and being friends with them. It's also kind of Giving that feedback so that they can develop and improve, I'm assuming, right? It,
1: it is. And people, you know, et, the, what the studies actually found was that there are generally always two groups of people. The in-group that wanted a close relationship with their manager. And it and it, it wasn't, we're not talking about friendship here. I think it's important distinction. We're talking about a close trust professional relationship that it's about the work it is personal in that we both share our own struggles and we become more comfortable being transparent with each other by and it's bi-directional in that as the manager i start to listen because the person has earned the right to say things to me and in the same way they listen to me because i've earned the right to say things to them and that happens through space and time and repetition and and intentional times where we get together and meet there's also going to be some people who always hold you at a distance. And that's thought of in this kind of study is the out group. That, that's okay uh, as long as it doesn't have negative uh, impacts on the larger organization. People with poor attitudes generally need to be moved on to places where they're going to be happier. Um, so so a lot of it is the feedback that you give, but I can't tell you how many professional discussions i've had one-on-one with employees behind closed doors end up i've got to pull the box of kleenex out because the person is talking about their marital or their money problems or something with a kid i mean we're all human beings and the more that people know that you care and the more trust you give them which by the way trust is most often you know built through honest feedback It's not built by just ignoring someone and being optimistic. And I think that's a confusion there. Like, oh, I trusted everything was fine because I didn't hear from you for a month. Well, that's not really trust, in my opinion. That's really just negligence. Right. Right. No, it's all
0: taking the lazy way out and just saying out of sight, out of mind.
1: Exactly. And I think a lot of times we are so optimistic when we hire people, we're really hesitant to, to say to them, this wasn't done the way I wanted it done. Let me show you what I meant, or let's talk through what you were thinking when you did it so that we can make sure we're on the same page. Now, that smells to a lot of man, agency owners like a conflict situation, and they think they want to avoid that. Um, so we don't want to avoid that. In fact, one of my one of the things that you absolutely do is when you bring somebody on, now this, this is a little hard to stomach. Okay. And I'm just <laughs> going to say it the first, when you bring somebody on for the first couple of weeks, you need to give specific improvement oriented feedback on everything they deliver back to you. Everything. And this is might set you, you might think I'm the biggest jerk in the world, right? Like you're so nitpicky. Well, Let's just contrast two situations. If you work for me and every day I'm giving you little bits of feedback that clarify the the task at hand, that give you positive feedback and corrective feedback, you get really used to receiving that. You get used to actioning on it. You start to see that this is a loop that comes around and it's valuable to you. Now, on the other hand, if I basically ignore you for a month, hand you stuff and everything that you give me back, I, I don't say anything about it other than, okay, thank you. And maybe even I say this is fine because I, I don't want to – I don't want like conflict, but I'm bottling it up. A month later, I'm just so sick and tired of your sloppy work, I sort of just explode and I say, you know, I, I'm sick and tired of you never paying attention to the little details, well, what do you mean, right? Like, how do you improve on something so broad? And most people would say, if you would have told me this a month ago, I-, I would have changed. But you held it in and now I don't even trust you. I don't know if you want to be honest, if you even can be honest. So it becomes a it becomes a trust uh, inhibitor versus a trust builder. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, it doesn't. On that note, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, Marcus is going to talk about how to overcome the fear of delegation that slows the growth of so many of us. So hang tight. We'll be right back. The Agency Advantage podcast is brought to you by Hubstaff. Now, Hubstaff makes time tracking software for remote teams so that you can stop tracking time with spreadsheets or the back of napkins or whatever else you're using and start getting the insights into how your team is actually spending their time that only screenshots and in-depth reports can give you our best clients are agency owners and while they love the accountability that comes with it it's sort of like upwork but without all the crazy fees where they really find the true value is by being able to connect hubstaff with a project management tool to see what tasks are taking up their team's time think of it as google analytics for your team i do want to warn you though there's a good chance once you see this data you're going to be sick when you realize how little time is spent actually delivering the project itself but you can't set up the procedures to make your agency more efficient if you're just guessing where time is being spent So give Hubstaff a try so you can stop guessing and start streamlining your agency. Head over to Hubstaff.com today and sign up for a free, no credit card required, 14-day trial and get your agency back on track. Let's get back to Marcus. So what I'm thinking is that I know for a lot of agency owners or managers in general, first-time managers, it's like, how do you overcome, not necessarily the fear, but there's so many times where you don't want to necessarily delegate a task because... You say to yourself, like, oh, I could just do that. It would be easier for me to do it myself than to delegate it.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's where treating your business like a franchise in the broad sense, I think, is a really smart thing to do. Um, there's books like, oh, what is it? Is it E-Myth? I think it is. Yep. E-Myth. There's a book called Traction, the EOS agency owner system. I mean, to, you do have to start to take the mindset of, especially if you think back about what you want the end to be, if you don't see an ending where you're literally, this business is working you to death, then you had better start thinking about how can it function without you? And that means setting up guidelines and policies and standards and procedures and things like that. Um, But, you know, most people listening, if you're in your first employee or two, I can just tell you that every time that you decide to do a task and that you don't give it away to somebody, what you're ensuring is that the next time that needs done, you're going to have to do it again. And it also ensures, and that's a bad thing. It also ensures that when you go on vacation and that kind of task needs to be done, there'll be nobody to do it. And your employee that's sitting beside you, watching you be 10 times busier than they are is going to quickly learn that you don't appear to have any intention of actually releasing any of the important work to the to them because, well, from their perspective, you just don't trust them. So it's really easy for them to start acting in an untrusting manner, untrustworthy manner, because after all, if you're keeping all the, the high priority stuff to yourself, all the hard stuff or all the all the stuff that is scares you to hand off. Um, what you're really communicating to them is, well, you're not going to, I'm not going to be able to trust you with this. I, I just need to do it myself. So the quality of your work may not even matter that much. And of course that's a really bad signal to send. Right.
0: Yeah. I didn't think of it from that angle. Cause it's almost like first you obviously need to think about the, the term view is, yeah, it might be faster for you to do this yourself today, but, this probably isn't going to be the only time the tasks are going to come up and you need to think about having someone else trained to be able and willing to, to handle this task in the future. But at the same time, like you said, if your new employees see that you really don't trust them to do a job well because whatever way you kind of want to break it down, that's basically what you're saying is when you won't delegate, you're saying, no, I, I don't necessarily trust you to do it right. So when when they see that, that's you're right, that's not going to kind of engender – the support you you need from the employees who are helping grow the business.
1: And I found that your employees actually start off and that's why I call them like scalpels, like sharp blades. They are excited. They're here because they want to they want to work in the business. They want to learn. And, and if they're not, they shouldn't be there and you didn't hire very well, but i have never hired anybody who wasn't super enthusiastic up front. And so creating a training plan, yeah, you know, when my kid was 5, He may have said, dad, can I drive the car? And I said, I don't trust you to do that yet, (laughs) but you're on a 10 year training plan where when you're 15, I'll release the, the wheel over to you when the time is right. But so at five years old, I trusted him with other things and, and it was a matter of gradually getting to the point where I could trust him with the car. Uh, now if he turned 18 and 19 and 20 and I, he always said, dad, can I drive? And I said, no, no, no. Driving's not that fun. I'll just take care of it. (laughs) He'd be like, well, clearly you don't trust me. Right. Right. So find ways to invest in people and to trust them with small things. And again, let them earn your trust. They will fail, but you've got to be brave enough to, to give that feedback. Otherwise they, they won't improve. And let's just say this, Andy, have you ever had one of these annual uh, performance evaluations that big companies do?
0: I, I'm lucky enough to have not had one of those. Okay.
1: Well, these are not <laughs> well thought of amongst corporate drones like I was, because once a year you go into a place and you have no, with your boss, you have no idea what to expect. And he pulls out this laundry list of sins that you committed over the last year. And he's like, well, nine months ago, you were a little snotty to a customer. So I'm going to score you lower right there. And and you're like nine months ago, right? How, how does that build trust? That just builds frustration. That just makes me want to quit. So give people feedback.
0: No, exactly. And like that's one of the main reasons why I think so many people gravitate towards starting an agency or working for an agency because they don't want that kind of impersonal corporate kind of mismanagement. They want someone to be more personal to help them grow and to do fun and creative things. And so I feel like a lot of times the agency owners will just – sort of default into what they think they're supposed supposed to do, but it's almost the exact opposite of what they really should do, which is treat them like a human, show them that you trust them, and build that trust by giving feedback regularly.
1: Yeah, and that's why, I mean, I think the one-on-one meeting every week, 30 to 60 minutes, is the foundational practice for an agency owner who says, I'm going to take the time to hire somebody, and I want to make sure that that works out. And it is a time by which there are times for business talk. There's time for personal talk. There's time to, we're going to review the work. We're going to make sure that the employee goes away with clear priorities because no employee loves to have 17 number one priorities. Right. (laughs) Um, and and we're just going to create this humane environment and we're going to open up space in that meeting to, to get feedback because as managers, as if you own the agency there's literally nobody telling you what you have to do, except when your employees leave and they say, they, and by the way, employees that leave never, ever actually tell you why they're leaving. So you've got to create lots of little places for you to get feedback so that you can improve things along the way.
0: Mm-hmm. Who are the typical agency owners that come to you for, for help with this? What, sort of, what do their agencies look like when they come to you?
1: They usually look pretty flat in terms of hierarchy. They, uh, they've they usually gotten to between five to eight developers. So they're on the, and yet they're still doing developer de- or design work as well as sales, accounting, marketing, HR, right? All the stuff it takes to run a business. They still are spending time in the work, not just on the business. Um, a lot of times they haven't, they, they have living under the myth of the self-managing programmer that they can just say, Uh, Hey, Bob, you're a programmer. Why don't you just – I'll just have uh, the client email you directly and you can work on their stuff. And although that's usually not worked out very well for them, they sort of keep thinking that that approach won't require them to put structures in place like project management and account management, which they feel they don't have time for. So they're not doing those things. And and usually they're either technical firms or design firms. uh, So they're service companies. These are not SaaS companies. I do work with some SaaS people, but I typically work with CTOs who have stepped uh, up from a developer or a founder role, and now they have a team. Um, But there is a big difference between product building organizations and service organizations.
0: Mm -hmm. And so when you're working with these agencies, these service organizations, I guess, how do you get started? I know it's a big question, but how do you get started kind of applying all the things we've been talking about so far? Do you just kind of dive in and say, here's what you need to do? or, Or what is the kind of brief overview of what that process is like.
1: No, I've got a standard onboarding worksheet that's a couple of pages. And we, we frankly, we start with goals. We create three month goals. It can be anything about their business that they are currently frustrated about or just they're not even sure how the business frustration leads to it. But a lot of them are working 60 or 70 hours a week. So they're showing poor work-life balance. Their relationships with their spouses or and their kids, they feel like they're starting to suffer. Um, they're incurring a lot of other maybe stress related problems, so they're not treating themselves very well, uh, and they feel like they have to be personally involved with every project for it to be successful. So we we start with some goals. Uh, I usually ask people. I, I always ask people to informally commit for a three month period of working together, and we really just work depending on the goals to create systems and feedback loops that are going to allow them to achieve their goals. And then I work invisibly behind the scenes with them, honestly, about 24-7. We only have a certain number of scheduled meetings, but the way all of my coaching work goes is essentially they have my cell phone and Skype and email, and they can talk to me as much as they need to, because it's my job to be part of their support system that they're investing in.
0: Okay. Interesting. I guess, how many agencies do you typically like to work with at a time?
1: I like to keep it under five because every one of them is, is an intensive engagement. Uh, I've got a slack room for agency owners and another one for software managers. And I do workshops and things like that. But as you might imagine, right, I'm a finite, limited person. And if, if I'm gonna, I can't solve 20 people's problems all at once, that's, that's where I'm gonna write a book that does this. But <laughs> for now, uh, my goal is really to have a, an incredibly deep impact on the people who want to invest this way to improve their lives. I have been there in that I I remember working at a company that I dreaded going into the office every day. And part of that was the stress of all the all the demands and part of it was poor partnership relationships and not knowing how to deal with that sort of interpersonal difficulties. So, I just don't want anyone else to have to suffer the way I did.
0: It's a it's a good point because people Agency owners don't want to create an environment like that, but sometimes it ends up happening because they don't know better. So it's kind of, it's helpful for them, I'm sure, to hear sort of that there is a way out, that there are better ways of doing it, and uh, how they can get started with that. I'm curious, what are your your short-term goals going forward for yourself?
1: Uh, For myself, uh, that's a great point. Um, I'm moving into more kinds of group work this year where I'm doing some workshops. I'm doing a workshop with Johanna Rothman. Uh, We did one at the end of last year. We'll do another one next year. She's an author of about a dozen Agile books, and it'll be on product owner training, especially for agencies that have to proxy and read their client's mind. Um, I'm doing some workshops on managing people, finding contractors. So I think for my business, what I want to do is spend more time writing and creating video and written content that people, uh, that will be helpful to people. So, uh, but but honestly, I got into this because I want to, I wanted to help individuals. So I don't think I'm going to give up the one-on-one practice. It's, it's just too important to my, to me to really see that kind of amazing change come for people.
0: To kind of distill it all down, which is hard to do. But if you were to, if you were to talk to somebody who to an agency owner who is at that kind of crossroads where they're saying, like, all right, either we can stay small, just a couple of us, we're all owners, or we can start hiring and growing, and they want to go the hiring route. What would be your kind of few pieces of advice to to make sure they don't make too many big mistakes along the way?
1: Number one, choose contractors and do everything contract to hire. I know you want to build an amazing company and you want to build a place with ping pong tables and foosball and you know all that great stuff and you can that is entirely cool and very worth it but make it the kind of place where everybody has to earn their place there by spending some time and i i think at least three months as a contractor and that's going to allow you to evaluate them in a real world situation and also you need to make sure that you can afford it and that you've got the demand that you think you're going to have Mm -hmm. second put in place just a couple once you hire those people especially your first one put in place some standards right and and by standards uh standard practices so number one do a weekly one-on-one meeting with them uh you can hit my website to find out my favorite weekly one-on-one format i talk about in there exactly what you do in there even if you feel like it's just I guess, oh, I don't know what I'm going to talk about this week, that sort of thing. Do the meeting and use it to gather feedback. Start communicating that you are the kind of boss who will be consistent, that you are the kind of boss that is trustworthy. My favorite saying is uh, a man who, who displays consistency will never have to ask for loyalty. When you are consistent to your employees, they know where they stand with you. They know they can trust you. So the one-on-one meeting, as hard as it sounds, choosing a date, a day and time every week and just being consistent for months is going to go a long way in building uh, a great relationship with your employees. And remember that while you may have hired them for skills, if that's what you thought you were doing... The thing that falls down the most isn't the skill portion, it's the attitude portion. So put intentional tests in place during the interviewing phase, like we talked about it. And even in the first month of working with them, where you are giving them opportunities to keep promises to you. And then if they don't, you clearly either don't pursue them if it's pre contract phase or afterwards, if you're if you're committed to them or, or if they're a contractor, you start to say, well, I only take three broken promises during the first month. And then no matter how great a person you are, like, I'm going to let you go because, because keeping your promise, we're in the promise keeping business. If you're a consultancy and that's got to be core to our, our ethics here. So those, that's just a few things people can do as they get started.
0: No, and I think that that's honestly a great summary of kind of the basics of what we talked about. But if people do want to learn more about this and about kind of what you. You have to say on these subjects, where can they go to find out more?
1: Uh, I write and have uh, articles and a uh, few offerings at marcusblankenship.com. And you can email me directly at marcus at marcusblankenship.com. If you have any questions, feel free to join my list. Uh, and uh, I look, for, I love meeting agency owners. I think that service work is one of the one of the things that's most fun in this world. And uh, that's why, that's why I, I, I'm right in the thick of it and really wanting to help folks.
0: No, I understand. That's awesome. And so I'll make sure to get all that linked up in the show notes. And I just want to say thanks so much for coming on, Marcus.
1: Absolutely, Andy. It was a pleasure.
0: All right. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you. I think everything Marcus talked about today can be boiled down to this. Be deliberate with your business. It will never be easy by accident. And without putting in the time and effort to intentionally do things the right way, you just aren't going to get results from your team, and you're going to have a hell of a time growing. Going deeper, this is how it summarizes theory of effective management. First, try before you buy. Always use contractors at the start. Then realize that trust is earned. So give them small tests to make sure they live up to their word before going all in with them. Then overcome your fear of delegation. You need to give them work so they can gain experience and prove themselves. Show them that you trust them. And above all else, give constant feedback, both positive and negative. Don't wait until an annual review to tell them you don't like their work. Tell them on a weekly basis so that they can improve. I know this is where agency owners of all sizes seem to struggle a ton, so I really hope this helped give you a better understanding of what you need to do to get things back on track in your own agency. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could do me a favor and head over to iTunes to leave a review. Reviews really help our rankings on iTunes and help us reach a wider audience. So if you could experiment to do that, I'd really appreciate it. Next week, I'll be back with none other than content marketer extraordinaire Andy Crestodina, who talks about how content marketing helped grow his agency to over $5 million a year and how they're able to hit those numbers without any retainers. Talk to you then. See ya.